Welcome to episode 280 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show you who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Kyle Vowinkle, who served in the FBI for 24 years. In this episode, Kyle reviews the 2013 Alabama bunker child abduction case known as The Boy in the Bunker, one of the FBI's greatest hostage recovery operations. January 2023 marks the 10th anniversary of the crisis event, which took place from January 29th through February 4th, 2013 in Midland City, Alabama, near the FBI's Dothan Resident Agency. Jimmy Lee Dykes boarded a school bus, killed the bus driver, and took five-year-old Ethan Gilman hostage. Having served for eight years on the FBI's elite hostage rescue team, HRT, and at the time of the incident, being a member of the Crisis Negotiations Unit, CNU, Kyle Vowinkle was on the ground, walking up to the bunker three times a day, accompanying HRT and acting as a bridge between tactical agents and negotiators' efforts to save the abducted child. Kyle was the architect and orchestrated the plan to save Ethan for his contributions to the successful resolution of this case. Kyle received the U.S. Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Heroism. He has presented this case at dozens of tactical and negotiation conferences around the world. During his time with CNU, Kyle negotiated with kidnappers, pirates, and one of the Boston Marathon bombers, who he was able to persuade to surrender. After his assignments on HRT and CNU, Kyle used his leadership experiences in supervisory positions at multiple FBI offices and retired as Assistant Special Agent in Charge, ASAC, in the Miami Division. Later in 2023, Kyle plans to publish a book sharing stories from his career. He can be contacted via his LinkedIn profile. Now, if you're listening to this show on the first day it's posted, January 22nd, 2023, it's my seven-year podcast anniversary today. When I posted my very first episode of FBI Retired Case File Review in January 2016, I had no idea what the show would become. As my reader team members already know, I have committed to continuing the show for at least three more years and my 10th anniversary. Well, you made that happen, so thank you for listening. Don't forget, I'll be away on an adventure to New Zealand and Australia for the next couple of weeks, so there will be no February newsletter, and the next podcast episode after this won't be posted until February 15th. I'll tell you all about my trip on social media and in my March Reader Team email. In your podcast app's description of this episode, there's a link to the show notes at jerrywilliams.com. You'll also find links to where you can buy me a cup of coffee, join my reader team, and learn more about me and my books. Thank you for your support. Now here's the show. I want to welcome my guest, retired agent Kyle Vowinkle. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Jerry. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. 
this January 2023 actually is the 10th anniversary of the boy in the bunker case. And so this is like perfect timing. We kind of squeezed you in so that we could release this the same week of the anniversary. That's terrific, Jerry. Now, I, I truly appreciate it. As I'll talk about, I, I believe this is one of the most incredible FBI hostage rescue missions in the history of the Bureau. Well, that's why we want to do it. I've actually done an episode about the boy in the bunker before, but we did it kind of at the overall level with Ron Hosko, my former ASAC in Philadelphia. But you were right on the ground. You were a member of the negotiation team, having also been a member previously of the hostage rescue team. So you knew everything that was going on and played a role in all of the negotiations that took place. I'm just real excited to get started on this. Where would you like to start? I'll start by just kind of defining that kind of unique perspective that I had being on the ground there. Like you said, I was literally there in Dothan going up to the bunker several times a day. I had firsthand involvement in kind of three different ecosystems of the crisis, right? One ecosystem being the negotiation efforts. And there was 25 negotiators on our team. Vince, my partner, and I were the CNU program managers. So we're responsible for crafting the negotiation strategy, getting approval from management for it, and then implementing that with our team. Vince headed that up. I was kind of like his deputy and he was the lead. I worked obviously in the negotiation realm. The second realm is the tactical realm. And fortunately, I had that eight years prior experience as an operator on HRT. I was able to go into that realm, which is very closed. HRT can be, I think the best way to phrase this, that HRT will listen to HRT personnel and me having that prior experience and bona fides and respect in that community, I was able to enter into the tactical realm and provide suggestions and talk amongst them where no one really else outside that inner tactical circle would be able to do that. The third realm I was in was the command realm as well. I, towards the end, you know, started out as just an advisor, but by the end of the seven-day ordeal, I was the architect of the plan and helped choreograph the rescue. So I became a part of the on-scene commander's inner circle of advisors. And I was on the phone calls with the director each and every day towards the end. So I was in that command sphere, the tactical sphere, and the negotiation sphere. Really, I was able to move in those three different ecosystems, unlike really anyone else. So the first-hand perspective I'm able to offer is, is pretty unique, much different than someone sitting at a desk monitoring from headquarters. I'm privileged to share it with you. And, and thank you, Jerry, first off, I should have said thank you for doing what you're doing to promote the Bureau after your career. Now I'm joining you and the other ranks of retired agents. You are a legend in the retired agents community. So it's truly a privilege to be on here with you. So thank you for having me. Thanks for saying that, Kyle. I do have to back up a little bit because you delicately explained the somewhat resistance of HRT to listen to maybe <laughs> other voices when it comes to a crisis situation. And I say that delicately because so many of us understand or have heard about the conflicts that occurred during Waco between HRT and the hostage negotiators. How many HRT members or operators became negotiators or the other way around? Are you a rare unicorn or, you, you know, unique individual in that aspect? Again, very interesting observation with your obviously bureau background and knowledge. Yes, I'm one of only a handful of former operators who made the transition to negotiators on CNU. So yeah, there's three before me that I'm aware of and then one after me. So it's around five in the history of the bureau. So it's a small group and I'm just fortunate 
I consider myself really just an ordinary person who's been part of some extraordinary teams. And those teams sometimes, I want to say inwardly focused, but they have their their own mindset. And I'll just briefly discuss it because it is so interesting. You know, the hostage rescue team in a hostage rescue mission, three tenets of a hostage rescue are speed, surprise, and violence of action. When HRT has to conduct an assault for a hostage rescue, again, those are principles which help formulate their assault planning and how they execute that mission. Whereas you compare and contrast that mindset with a negotiator's mindset. Negotiators, they talk about emotions. Negotiators want to slow things down. Negotiators want to avoid conflict at all costs. So at times, you can have this naturally opposing viewpoint from the negotiators and from tactical. And that, unfortunately, was evident in Waco from the beginning of the crisis. And I'm sure you've read, and I think you had Gary Nessner on. He was the first CNU unit chief and wrote Stalling for Time. And he discusses it really at length, that disagreement over you know fundamental philosophical difference about the negotiators and tactical working together during a crisis. Unfortunately, there was tragedy, although David Kresh and his victims, they all made a choice as well. But post-Waco, what the Bureau did, there was a report from a Deputy Assistant Attorney General, and part of his recommendations was a unified command between tactical negotiators and the creation of CERG, the FBI's Critical Incident Response Group Division, to bring all those assets, not just tactical negotiation, but also behavioral analysis, surveillance, aviation support, all those assets which would be involved in responding to a crisis under one umbrella, under one chain of command, so as to avoid what previously happened in, in Waco. I'm almost like the poster child of the way it kind of should work, ideally, is someone who can be a bridge between tactical and negotiators. And again, having that training and experience in both worlds and maintaining you know, positive relationships with colleagues in both. I was able to walk back and forth in Alabama in both of those worlds. You'll see at the end, I was able to propose a plan, which was amenable to all, which was really just due to me having that experience in both worlds. This is really going to be interesting because... You had only left the hostage rescue team, what, had been a year? So I take yes. it that you knew many of the people that were assigned. Absolutely, yeah. The senior team leader, a guy named Witt, was one of my best friends. He was one of my groomsmen at my wedding. And then, yeah, most every operator I knew. It's a very small group on HRT. The only group I didn't know was like the brand new operators. So for the most part, yeah, I knew 90% of the team. But most importantly, I knew how HRT works. I knew the structure and I knew at different points who to engage with different suggestions and again, how to delicately engage them with suggestions without pushing and just offering them up. Thankfully, it worked out and was an incredible success. I also want to say too, this story represents the collective effort of hundreds of law enforcement and FBI wasn't just FBI and HRT. The Mobile Division supplied assets. Atlanta Division sent assets. There were bomb technicians, behavioral analysis. Literally over 100 bureau personnel were there on site towards the end. So it was really everyone working together, which was able to resolve this incredibly complex situation. I think one of the things that we've both done is to assume that everybody has already listened to my previous episode or have heard about this case. And in case there's people listening who have no idea what we're talking about, who this boy in the bunker is, should we begin with how it all began? Yeah, so we can do a quick overview. First, actually, before we get into the story, I do want to say just one thing about HRT for those who may not be familiar with the hostage rescue team. It's a DOJ national level asset. Back in 1983, the U.S. government, President Reagan, signed the creation order for HRT to be a civilian equivalent counterterrorism team that has the same capabilities as SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force. HRT has an incredibly rigorous selection and training process. 
And even those incredibly fit agents who try out, you know, it's only about a 25% selection rate. And then after that's after the selection, then they're invited back to new operators training, which is another nine-month crucible, which individuals have to successfully prove themselves through. So you have a cadre of just incredibly competent, team-oriented individuals. And I like to say at HRT, you learn to put the team before self. And that's really critical as we get into this crisis, because you'll see uh, there were no egos. And I've seen a bunch of crises with egos. So I know it's not all rainbows and unicorns, but they're at Dothan because it was such a complicated scenario. And there's so many players involved. It was amazing to see the collaboration with the Houston County Sheriff's Office, the Dale County Sheriff's Office, the Alabama Bureau Investigation, the FBI Local Office, the FBI Surge Assets truly was one team. And it was really kind of impressive that they all kind of came together. I'll do the quick overview. It starts rural Alabama in a Midland city, about 2,400 people there. The county has about 50,000 people. It's just very rural Southeast Alabama. Incident starts off with our bad guy. The subject is Jimmy Lee Dykes. He, the day before actually, and this is important because it was mentioned in your previous podcast that Mr. Dykes had cleared out some laurel brush to make it easier for the bus driver to turn around. This is part of Dykes's plan. This goes to the assessment. Part of what negotiators do is assess behavior. And Dykes is cultivating a relationship with Mr. Poland. Mr. Poland is the bus driver. So he clears that brush and he's making things easier for Mr. Poland. And that morning he knocks on the bus driver's door and asks him if he likes broccoli and carrots. This is actually the day before the event. Then the next morning, the day of the event, Mr. Poland was so kind of taken by his gesture of Mr. Dykes, he actually left a bag of jelly and eggs, I believe, and a note at that turnaround spot because Mr. Dykes wasn't there in the morning. How nice of that was Mr. Poland to reach back out to Mr. Dykes with a gift of his wife's you know, homemade jelly. Unfortunately, tragedy strikes that afternoon when Mr. Poland is going to drop off the kids. And when Mr. Poland sees Dykes come up to the bus door, he opens the bus door, unfortunately, for the very last time. Dykes steps aboard. He has a Ruger pistol in his hand. He has a note in his other hand. He steps aboard the bus, and then he begins to demand two children be taken off the bus. And I have an audio clip, and this is a different audio clip than your listeners heard before. This is from the actual inside of the bus, the video and audio capture system now. So if you could play part one right now, Jerry, that'd be terrific. Don't! Again, you got to. It's the only way. There will not be harm. And you won't be harmed. It's my responsibility. I can't help to that. Kids on the I can't help that. This is, this is, I don't come to the I rules. can't turn them over to somebody else. The, the rules are go. Can't. We can't help it. It don't matter. It's got to go. Come on. Come on. He, no. He's scared. Uh -huh. he's scared. Uh -huh. you, will not, you will not be harmed, son. You will not be harmed, son. I'm sorry. I cannot. I'm going to I'm gonna have to shoot you. Come on, I don't have any time. The goddamn law's coming. Come on! Don't! Don't! Can't do it. Don't! Can't. Ah! So as you hear from that truly horrifying audio, you hear a few things. You hear Mr. Poland heroically refusing when faced with a gun pointed at him at short range. And unarmed Mr. Poland refuses to give up the children off his bus. He says, it's my responsibility, these kids. So even facing death, he was not afraid and he was willing to do and sacrifice anything to protect his children on that bus. So just really incredible. The first of many heroic acts there in Dothan. 
unfortunately, Mr. Dykes, as you see, he had a plan that he and his mind had deliberately thought out and his plan included taking children and he was going to remove any obstacles that prevented him from achieving his plan. So as you hear those gunshots, he shoots Mr. Poland five times. Unfortunately, Mr. Poland expires over the front wheel of the bus and the kids totally understandably go berserk and are crying hysterically. And Mr. Dykes then reaches for the first nearest child he can, which is Ethan Gilman, who's seated behind Mr. Poland. He grabs Ethan, throws him over his shoulder and walks about the 100 feet back to his bunker. This bunker is something that he created. He dug and hand built over the course of a year. It's basically a large hole in the ground reinforced with plywood, six by eight feet wide, about 11 feet deep covered on the outside with cinder block, again, framed with plywood on the inside and on top, and has a really heavy hatch, probably 200 pounds of two by sixes. This hatch is so heavy that he actually has garage door springs mounted on a telephone pole to help him lift this hatch up. And it's a very sturdy, rigid structure, which he built, we believe, intentionally to keep law enforcement at bay. And what's most interesting to us is after Dykes murders Mr. Poland, he takes Ethan, he takes him down to his bunker, puts Ethan down in the bunker, he climbs back up the stairs. There's some really steep stairs climbing up that 11 feet back out. And Mr. Dykes uses his telephone and he summons 911. The subject calls 911 on his position and admits to killing the bus driver. So again, fascinating from a behavioral analysis perspective, the subject wants and needs law enforcement there. And if you want to play number two now, the listeners can hear his call to the local 911 dispatcher. Copy, Medic 5. 911, where's your emergency? Medic 1. 911. I'm sorry? 502. 502, you're screaming. We can't understand you. I'm at 1539. Yes. Okay, yes, sir. What's going on? Uh, I have a hostage. Sir, what's wrong? What's going on? I have a. This thunder. Thunder like 256 at the front gate. You will find a white post there that you can talk through on a. You can talk to. I'm in an underground bunker. You're in an underground bunker? Okay, sir, you have a child with you? Yes. Okay, what's your name, sir? Jim Dykes. And, uh, okay, sir, where are you? What's your address? Uh, 256, Road, 1539. I'm simulcasting. Okay, sir. She seems to kind of know something's going on. I remember that one of the students on the bus also called in. Is that why she seems to really understand what Dykes is telling her or really believe what Dykes is telling her? You are absolutely correct, Jerry. The actual first contact with law enforcement comes from a 15-year-old. Trey Watts is in the back. He's playing actually NBA Jam on his phone. You know, typical kid just enjoying the bus ride or not thinking about much. And then he sees Mr. Dykes come on board and actually he calls before, I believe actually before the shots go off. He calls 911, speaks with Brittany, the dispatcher, and informs her there's a man on the bus with a gun. He tells him that our driver's been shot. 911 operators do know from that first call that there's a problem on the bus and they start sending units out immediately. Our subject is Jim Dykes. He's 65 years old. He's 6'1", like 130 pounds. You look at him, he's kind of scrawny and wiry. 
you wouldn't think that much of him, but he's a tough SOB. He has a criminal record, numerous minor arrests in Florida and Alabama, DDWI, grand larceny, drug possession, he did assault a police officer, and he has a brandishing a weapon charge from a neighbor kid that next morning. So we think that may have been the final trigger to start this horrible sequence of events is that court date. Our victim is Ethan Gilman. As horrible as this is to say, he's probably the perfect victim. He's a five-year-old with diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, a type of pervasive developmental disorder. He needed medication three times a day. Mr. Dykes had handed a note to Mr. Poland. Oh, Mr. Poland didn't read it, but on the note, Dykes demands two boys, healthy, well-mannered children. That was his plan. And now, though, his plan is also not going according to what he wanted because now he's a child who needs medication three times a day. That's going to cause complications for Mr. Dykes, but actually ends up helping law enforcement significantly, which I'll get into later. Dykes, as I mentioned, his bunker, he spent over a year preparing for this confrontation. It's stockpiled with food and water and supplies to hold out for months. It was determined and well thought out. He actually had a neighbor help him dig it and kind of creepy, ominous foreshadowing. He asked his neighbor to go down inside the bunker and scream. And then Mr. Dykes stood outside to see if he could hear the screams. The neighbor thought it was odd and asked why. And Mr. Dykes said, oh, in case there's a thunderstorm and I need help, I want to know if people can hear me scream. But as we now know, it's quite the contrary. It was so that no one would hear the screams of his children if they were down there and seeking help. So not only does he dig and create this bunker with his own hands, he also dug a 170-foot-long trench, which is about a foot and a half deep, to bury a PVC pipe, a speaking tube communication device. And if you're able to hear in the 911 call, he directs police to come to the speaking tube at the end of the road. And we believe Dykes did this to create a defensive barrier, space and distance to keep law enforcement away from that bunker hatch, which goes to show his determination and his intelligence to have that security ring defensive buffer around his perimeter. So the very first responders are Dale and Houston County Sheriff's Department. The first crisis negotiator to speak is a Bill Rafferty, great affable man who'd been in the FBI 40-hour negotiation course. So he knows the tools and techniques. And he's the first one to tell Dykes that Ethan needs medication. Sheriff Wally Olson, a great man, he and Steve Richards in the FBI special agent charge, they knew each other. It was all good local FBI offices, have great relationships, hopefully, with their local state partners. So they spoke, and the sheriff invited the FBI to come because this was such a unique incident, which surpassed local department's capabilities. And the Bureau can bring so much to the table in a crisis. Perfect example is that that speaking tube, like a three-inch PVC pipe tube. Negotiators were speaking right at that tube, and a bomb tech that night, they actually tried to stick a camera down there to see down into the tube, and they discovered obstruction. I can't determine what exactly obstruction is. Special agent bomb technician comes up with some x-ray equipment, x-rays it, and we discover inside that tube, right where the police and negotiator were standing, it was concealing an improvised explosive device. So now not only has Dykes killed an innocent bus driver trying to protect his children, now we believe he has an offensive threat and may want to kill negotiators or other law enforcement through this bomb out of that speaking tube. That's where he asked us to go to. So very disconcerting, right? It's like Fine. a booby trap. Exactly concealed. It goes to his determination. And really, what is his end game, right? We're trying to, as I mentioned, analyze his behavior. Is that an offensive threat? Is it a defensive threat? We were, you know, does he want to keep us away as a defensive threat or is it offensive? He wants to take some of us out. A lot of debate back and forth with negotiators and the behavioral assessment people initially as to the exact nature of that IED. But yeah, anyway, you look at it, it's a negative development. Uh, but a positive development, our first negotiators, FBI negotiators to supplement the mobile team is the Atlanta team. And they do a fantastic job that first evening and in the morning of day two, they persuade Dykes to accept a throw phone. 
throw phone as our awesome negotiation communication device. So that way it relieves us from having anyone stand at that IED. Not that Dykes cares about that, but we, and they sold it to Dykes. This way you can have a 24-7 line to us and call us and we'll be here to answer it whenever you need us. And that only happens really in like 10% or less of incidents, according to FBI statistics. Atlanta negotiators did a fantastic job persuading him to accept that. We also you know, have some OTD, Operational Technology Division personnel, really smart, fantastic folks that have some neat devices, and I'll just leave it at that. They were able to help enable a covert collection device inside the bunker. This covert collection device was able to provide us some critical intel kind on of how Ethan was being treated by Dykes and allowed us also to assess his behavior and see how Dykes was treating Ethan. Because there was some speculation from the BAU folks initially that maybe Dykes selected one or two boys for some sexual gratification or physical abuse, which is, you know, in that case, if there's any abuse or threat to life or limb, we need to send in tactical right away, right? We're not going to wait or pause. Whereas if the hostage is being treated okay, even though it's not a good situation at all, there's no exigent circumstances dictating an emergency assault. It just gives tactical and decision makers a little more time. And that intel was really invaluable to help us. I have an audio clip here, number three, that shows how Dykes was treating Ethan inside the bunker. I got dirt on my You want uh, citrus blend or fresh scent? Okay, so you haven't gone into detail, but we can assume that there was some type of listening device and maybe even camera visual device down there that allowed you to hear and see what was going on. Yes, I still want to try to protect Bureau equities, even outside retirement. So yeah, I'll just say some covert collection capabilities that provided audio and visual inside the bunker. So think of that game changing perspective because decision makers, tactical and negotiators beforehand had zero visibility inside the bunker. We couldn't see how he's treating Ethan. We couldn't see what else was inside the bunker. And now after this device or devices, now we're able to see a lot and gain incredible intel. And more importantly, right, is assess the behavior. Is he hurting Ethan? Do we need to send in forces right away? Just some great work that, again, negotiators helped enable with OTD. Okay. And so this is a recording of some of what you heard, a little bit of what you heard during Ethan's capture. So he's being pretty nice to him. Absolutely. And me and my partner, we termed it as grandfatherly. He is giving him choices. He actually, again, shows to his pre-planning and preparation. He asks, you know what, citrus blend or, or fresh scent juice? He's taking care of his needs. He's being attentive. And, and where is that juice coming from? Did he already have it? Or is it something yes, that you no. guys sent down? No, this is stockpiled by Dyke. So that goes to exactly his pre-planning. He had the children's juices already there inside the bunker. Remember, he wanted two kids initially. But yeah, it was stuff that he had put in the bunker. Yeah, so it's still right a horrible situation. You have a five-year-old in the bunker. However... He's treating them grandfatherly. We now have 24-7 visibility. So we also, at the flip of a switch, HRT is postured with an emergency assault team. If things do escalate and the risks become too great to Ethan, the commander can send in the team. So that's 24-7 capability provided us. So also that collection capability gives us a view inside the bunker and we see a couple more disturbing things. We see a helium tank. We see what looks like a long gun and we see another improvised explosive device. So now we have two IEDs, one outside of the speaking tube and one inside the bunker. And we have a long gun and we assume he still has a Ruger pistol. He's got multiple weapons, multiple devices. And example of the great reach back of the FBI and our fantastic capabilities, we took pictures from that and sent it to our lab personnel. And also one of our agents doing great agent work during a recon mission one night, he saw some trash. He went through the trash back at a safe location and found a receipt for the PVC pipes and other materials which Dyke used 
to make this ID. So we also sent it back to the lab. So they recreated an exact replica of the ID he had inside the bunker. They detonated that off at the HRT range. And unfortunately, the explosive experts said, if that ID is detonated inside the bunker, it will be lethal to Dykes and Ethan. Wow. So that's vital information to know. Yeah. So not that the you know risk could be any greater, but he has multiple capabilities with which to inflict harm on himself, Ethan, and law enforcement. So what does Dykes want? What are his demands? He wants a young, attractive female reporter to enter his bunker so he can tell his story. Because remember, he summoned law enforcement right to the scene. And that's really what he's using Ethan for. Ethan is his bartering chip, his poker chip, and he knows that he's hopefully going to exchange with law enforcement for that reporter to come down the bunker. Then and only then, when the reporter comes in the bunker, that's the only condition under which he will release Ethan. We tried every other derivation about trying to get Ethan out first, and he was smart enough to realize, nope, once I let Ethan go, I lose all my power, and he would have no way to barter with us. So once the reporter, in his mind, came down the bunker, he tells her this fantastical story, which will take two to three days, and then he's going to hold her hand and pass off into Never Never Land. His suicide plan, pretty evil, is that he's going to attach a plastic bag over his head, connected to a plastic tube to that helium tank. He turns on the helium, and then that goes into his covered face, and he drifts off and dies. And then the female reporter would have to find the file and file off her own shackles and then release herself from captivity. So obviously, that was really no course of action that the Bureau really took seriously because we don't introduce you know additional lives into the crisis site. Although we did joke, we have a shorter operator, a good friend of mine named Matt. He said, well, maybe we could put Matt in a dress and some makeup and <laughs> you know a wig and put him down there as a reporter. That's sick tactical humor. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, it was kind of fun because you you know you need some releases. And actually, I'll tell you a funny story about Matt later, like because the tension is so high. And so that, that was a good laugh break, picturing Matt, you know, in a dress and a wig and a makeup as a rather unattractive female, I'll say. <laughs> well, that wouldn't have worked because Dykes specifically said he wanted an attractive female reporter. So exactly. Yeah, we told Matt, yeah, he never passed. <laughs> The negotiators, what are we doing? Anything we can to protect and shield Ethan, trying to provide some nonviolent options. Where'd you guys come from? Because we were talking about having the Mobile, Alabama office there, and then the Atlanta office came in. When was that decision made to call CERG and get HRT and hostage negotiators down there? Thank you for asking that. Yeah. So day one, you know, all of us in the Bureau have connections at other field offices. So on day one in the afternoon, we hear some rumblings just from personal connections. Hey, this guy went on a bus and like killed a bus driver. So we monitor the situation just a little bit. Nothing official though, Monday night. It's just like, hey, this is kind of a weird deal. The guy's in a bunker or something. And then it's the morning of day two when that IED is found that the official request comes from the SAC to FBI headquarters and the director approves the team deployment. So it's day two that we negotiators with HRT and the FBI aircraft. We deploy down there day two, arrive on scene and immediately start integrating with the locals into this really large task force of law enforcement personnel who are all working together to try to save Ethan. And I guess that's a question that everybody has. What is that criteria? Because in the field offices, they have trained hostage negotiators and they have their trained SWAT operators who, in most situations, can take care of things that happen locally. So what is it that triggers at the headquarter level. This is where we can call out HRT and critical incident response group and negotiators. Can you explain what that difference is? Because it was made early on. Right. It's really the Bureau model is a, a tiered response. And I was in the field, of course, before HRT. I was on the FBI Los Angeles SWAT team. 
which is a fantastic SWAT team. We did many high-risk arrests, and we had some great training. And you're also a case agent, though, in the field. And LA SWAT, for example, about one week a month, maybe seven days, you would do SWAT training or SWAT missions. And the other two to three weeks, right, you're a case agent investigating cases. Again, it was a great team, did some great work. And that's like the tier two. The tier one response, right, is that national level asset. HRT, for example, and CNU, all they do every day, all day, HRT, your tactical operators on a counterterrorism team, every day they're training, every day they're preparing for missions. Same with the new negotiators, the 11 people on CNU is their 100% full-time job. They're teaching, they're training, they're deploying on missions. It's a national level asset. When almost any big, significant critical incident is going to quickly eat up a local field office's assets. Even like a Boston, New York, or LA, right? They can't sustain something 24-7 for really more than 72 hours. You have to have extra resources from other field offices and from headquarters to supplant it, just from a personnel management perspective. But what HRT brings and CNU brings is just that extra level of expertise and capabilities. For example, HRT has explosive breaching. HRT has canines. HRT has enhanced communication devices. And those three areas, for example, just provide the local SAC with an enhanced capability. His local FBI team is great, but they don't have that capability at training. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'll talk about the negotiators, right? Our response there is just to gather intelligence. Besides protecting, shielding Ethan and the nonviolent options, we're gathering intelligence. We're trying to provide Dykes with a hearing. He wanted to talk and tell his story. Well, that's perfect. That's what negotiators do, right? We listen to others, use our active listening skills, and we're trying to build rapport, demonstrate empathy, lower his expectations and emotions. We kind of want to keep Dykes on a stable emotional level. People get irrational when they get highly emotional. So we want to keep his emotions calm and level inside the bunker so he doesn't, in turn, vent or direct any rage towards Ethan. And we want to slow things down and really stall time for tactical. Because at the end of the day, I remember Vince and I talking about this on day three or four, we are never going to cave into his demands. We are never going to put that female reporter down inside the bunker. So as fantastic as negotiators can be and the value we add to the crisis, we are unlikely to be able to solve it, not by our own doing, but by the subject's choices. You know, he's a promise keeper as BAU termed him, that he said he was going to die in that bunker. So we knew at the end of the day was probably going to have to be a tactical resolution. So what is tactical doing? This is what HRT does. They refine and create emergency assault plans and deliberate assault plans. The emergency assault plan is, you know, as soon as they get to the ground, if there's, like I said, some circumstances which require an immediate assault, they prepare to do that. And also the deliberate assault plan is a much more thought out one that they can rehearse and practice. What HRT does is refine, refine, and refine. So every day they're trying to improve that deliberate assault plan to make it cleaner, to make it faster, to make it safer. You talked about it in your podcast before. One of the current HRT operators was a former SEAL and he had some connections at the uh, Gulfport CB Seaport Battalion, called up some friends and the CBs there loaded up, I don't know, three or four 18-wheeler trucks on day two or day three. They drove up to Dothan. They created a mock-up bunker full size for HRT to practice on. So it's just incredible benefit having those other federal government relationships, which enabled HRT and plans to get better and better each day. So look at the bunker. I think you have a picture on your site, right? You had center blocks on the front, stairs going up, and you can see that angled telephone pole, which has those two springs. But there's no plans on file with the county. Mr. Dykes didn't go to the county planning commission and file plans for his bunker to get approval. He disliked and distrusted government So we are trying to gather as much info as we can on our calls with Dykes, right, about the bunker construction, because any detail we can get from him, we then share with Tackle to aid and help their planning. Also, the neighbor who went down to the bunker one time, we interviewed him several times, passed that information along to Tackle to help their preparation of that deliberate assault plan if needed. 
Now, bunker deliveries, I'll transition to now. When we arrived on day two, the fact that Ethan needed medication for his Asperger's syndrome enabled law enforcement to go up to that bunker three times a day to deliver one pill. So how great is this? We would put an envelope, seal the envelope with one pill, and Bill Rafferty, our primary negotiator, would call Dykes. Hey, it's time for Ethan's morning medication. We're going to send the guys up to drop it off. Okay, Jim? Okay. So we'd verbally prepare Mr. Dykes. The team would go up. They'd knock on that hatch lid. Mr. Dykes had some eye bolts that had some bicycle locks cables attached to the bottom of that bunker lid. So not only is it 200 pounds, he has bicycle lock cables winched down inside so nobody can open that bunker lid unless he wants them to. So he would release the cables just like an inch or two, just enough for tactical enough to lift that lid up and slide in the envelope and then drop it down to the bottom, that 11 feet down to the bottom of the floor. So he wouldn't be in that hatch. He'd be back in the corner. Then we'd drop off the meds. He'd come forward, get the envelope opened up and give the pill to Ethan. On day two or the evening, I heard tactical was doing that. And I said, hey, there's communication going on at the bunker between law enforcement and the subject. Anytime you have communication going on between law enforcement and subject, you should have a negotiator. So I volunteered and I said, I'm a logical guy, right? With the tackle background, I'll accompany HRT and the Houston County Sheriff's guys up to that bunker each and every time for the deliveries. So then I became like the tactical negotiator liaison. I established kind of consistency of communications every time because the sheriff's deputy Tony was the guy talking to Dykes there. Just to be clear, the primary negotiation channel was Bill Rafferty on the phone to Dykes. This is just during the medicine deliveries so those three times a day. So it's just really like five to 10 minutes. But each and every interaction we can use, we can try to gain intel. We can try to build rapport with the subject, try to build a bridge between them and maybe build rapport to influence and possibly exploit Dykes in the future. So that was kind of my mindset. What kind of things were you talking to him about during those few minutes where you were dropping off the medication? I tell Tony to say the same thing each and every time. So we have consistency communications like, hey, Jim, it's Tony. Hey, and then, for example, I'd maybe have one or two points. Hey, we go up this morning, just ask him how he's doing to get a good night's sleep. Really just trying to build a connection, build rapport with him. So there's nothing specific I can remember besides asking him, you know, hey, how are you doing? You feeling okay? Just kind of showing our concern for Dykes to kind of build that friendship or relationship. I know it sounds crazy, right? This guy's in a bunker, but Tony, the local sheriff's deputy, he spoke with a Southern drawl just like Rafferty did. So perfect example, the Bureau, we don't look to displace locals and the locals right there are the perfect example. They spoke that Southern kind of dialect, the slower pace. And we said, hey, we're not going to move them out of that roles of talking. We're going to support and provide coaching and suggestion to them. So they maintain that primary communication like that makes sense with us kind of coaching them. Did this deputy, Tony, know Dykes? Did they have a relationship before this? No, I do not believe that he knew him. But Dykes was known by law enforcement. He'd had several interactions with them. So he was kind of a known quantity to the Houston County and Dale County Sheriff's Department. Dykes, he was an interesting guy, right, to say the least. He watched Jerry Springer and Oprah. He had a little TV actually inside the bunker. Big grudge against the government. He said his story is going to make the world go ape shit. He was married once or twice. He had two daughters, but hasn't spoken to any family member in over 20 years. So definitely a loner, but he does express an interest in one of the calls about speaking to his daughters. So we think of you know third-party intermediaries, someone who has a pre-existing relationship with an individual that may help law enforcement safely resolve the situation. So Dykes, during day two to four, he's just kind of rambling a lot and going on and on telling his story. So here's a clip for the audience to hear him just rambling and kind of see what you all think. This is an example of one of our many phone calls with Dykes. We're in the business with my brother-in-law. I helped him build a rig, a liquid asphalt rig. We went down to Panama City. We was making damn good money. My first chance in life of getting somewhere in life. And and I tried, and he came up with a formula for the mix. The formula was fine. We was making big money. We did the Ebro dog track for $50,000. 
But then our salesman, a drunk alcoholic salesman, cheated us out of ten thousand dollars that deal. And then on top of that, John, my brother-in-law, he tried he started half-assing the mix. When you come up with a formula, you do not change the formula. Yeah. And he did, and he said, oh, I said, John, we got to stick with the formula now. we got to have everything right. Oh, it's okay. I got it. I know what I'm doing. And so he ended up, we lost a contract on a McDonald's down there, the last job I worked with him. It just messed up terrible. They sued him. Well, the business shut down. I had to go back to work driving a truck. And then after I warned him, I said, that salesman's going to screw us, John. He's no good drunk. He's going to screw us over. He said, well, no, I got him under control. Well, and, it, but, but you see, it, it, it all went down just like I said. I yeah. warned him and it, and it, and it happened just like I said. Well, you got I, betrayed. I, yeah. I to... So how would you like Jerry to listen to that for eight hours a day? Wow. So he's just, whenever he gets on the phone and who is that, that he's talking to, is that you or your partner? No, so actually, remember, we had a 25-person negotiation team from mostly Bureau, but we had Bill Rafferty on there. We had some state and other locals. So Bill Rafferty was the primary for day one and day two. And we thought, hey, let's give Bill a break, even though Rafferty's doing a great job. So we tried an FBI negotiator there on day three. So that's a Bureau negotiator. And as we assess his job, he's actually doing a pretty good job. He tries some emotional labeling in there at the end. He says, sound like you've been betrayed. He uses some minimal encouragers, right? He's letting Dykes talk. But really, is that two-way communication, Jerry? Oh, absolutely not. I right. mean, Dykes is just talking and talking and talking. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That negotiator, again, does a really good job. But after eight hours on, I think it's day three, he listens and listens, doesn't push, doesn't bring up anything until the very end. And then just says, very non-confrontationally, in perfect negotiator fashion, says, hey, Jim, what can we do about getting Ethan out of there? And Dykes responds in true Dykes fashion, I never want to talk to you again. You're fired. Wow. Yeah, so the mere mention of Ethan's release ruined all rapport, all efforts at building that relationship with a negotiator. So we actually tried one other FBI negotiator, and then we went back to Rafferty. We went and all empowered him, which is kind of an interesting tidbit, too, on our daily call with the director. He asked, you know, how are negotiation efforts going? I said, sir, hey, they're going pretty well. And he said, how many calls were there? Sir, we had two calls today. And at this point, we got massive bureau resources down there and not much progress on a resolution yet. The director was maybe a little frustrated and said, only two calls? What's going on down there? Uh, sir, each call was over four hours long. This is a perfect example of someone being on the ground, right, versus a headquarters perspective. Right, right. Not having all the facts. And in his defense, right, he's got a lot going on. He's the FBI director. I don't expect him to be tracking the length of the calls, but it's just kind of interesting tidbit nonetheless. Right, because uh, a report would just say two calls were made as right. opposed to people who were there understanding that those are very lengthy calls. Exactly. And the last little thing I'll mention about headquarters, and it's changed now, but negotiations were the critical source of intelligence, right, and progress. So on day four, we actually got a request from headquarters. And I don't know who it came from, doesn't matter, but the request from headquarters was for hourly updates from CNU on the ground. It was only me and Vince. We were the two CNU reps. And to have an hourly update, just think of the you know time required to prepare one, the time to assess really what happened the previous hour, then the time to write it up, package it, have it reviewed by Vince and me and send out. Like it really took up one whole negotiator out of any productivity on the ground. And all they were was basically you know funneling reports to headquarters. So that insatiable headquarters demand for information actually was slightly detrimental towards the end because Understandably so, they want information, but that was just too little a time between updates. So thankfully, it's much better now, but I just share that with you because you know how much people want information during times of crisis. You said it's much better. What was the change made? Or it was just noted how time-consuming that was, and so they don't request it as much? 
Right. So they now they stick more within the channel, like the crisis negotiation unit chief. He will talk to his people. He will manage the negotiators and they'll have one to two day calls with those high bureau officials to update them. And that's at most now twice a day as opposed to, you know, hourly written updates. Does that make sense? So, yeah, there's one to two calls a day and it's a little bit more of a delegation to those true subject matter experts. Right. right. Un- understanding yeah. that they have put in place people who know what they're doing. So let exactly. them do what they do. Precisely. OK. Yeah, I get it. So days two to four, as weird as it's to say, it was kind of stable inside the bunker. Ethan is being treated OK. You know, the grandfatherly behavior. But the negotiated rapport, as I mentioned, would vanish when Ethan's release was mentioned. And Dykes is remaining steadfast on his hostage exchange for the completion of his mission. So we still have that big obstacle at the end. And during deliveries, a positive development, there is some bonding between law enforcement, Tony, and Dykes in the bunker lid. That's a positive development. Negative development, we had some media issues. One of his neighbors, Dykes, killed one of her dogs, unfortunately, because it wandered into his property. She goes on the media, and this was played on the local newscast, but I think it got some national attention, too. I can play that now for you actually joined with Rhonda Wilbur, who is a neighbor. Um, So Rhonda, what can you actually tell us about? Uh, My source of interest for a long time, because he has been like a time bomb waiting to go off. So there you heard the neighbor being interviewed by the local news, calling him a time bomb. Now inside the bunker, Dykes has that television. He watched that newscast and it ticks him off. It pisses him off. He says to us, Bill Rafferty, I should say, he says, that effing rhymes with which I should have killed her other dog, too. She had two dogs. So his emotions get all ramped up. And that's exactly opposite what we want to do, right? We want to keep him stable. And now the neighbor is making things worse and it's agitating Dykes. So my partner, again, Vince, had a great idea. Let's send a positive message to Dykes. And I said, how on earth can we do that? How do we send a positive message to Dykes? We've been working again very closely, right, with the sheriff, the SAC, great kind of command team there. And the National Press Office had a representative there, Scott. So we all met and crafted a message to have the sheriff thank Dykes on national TV. So think about that for a second. This is an elected official, Wally Olson. We are asking him to go on national TV and thank the subject. And I'm going to play the sheriff's actual message. He's also allowed us to provide coloring books, um, medication, toys. I want to thank him for taking care of our child. That's, that's very important. Look how gutsy an elected sheriff was. This guy killed your local bus driver and abducted one of your local citizens, and you're going on the news thanking him? Well, obviously, the public had no idea it was part of the CNU-crafted media strategy. We were trying to get lower Dykes' emotions. Just great idea of exploiting the media to law enforcement's advantage, which my partner had. And kudos to the sheriff for following through with it. He and that local community were fantastic. I do want to give a shout-out. Like They brought us meals and did laundry for us. And even in our hotel room, just incredibly touching. There was a cookie wrapped up with a little note. Thank you for trying to save our child. Very touching. Something that the folks there were appreciative of law enforcement. And I don't know, it just still warms my heart to this day thinking about that. Seeing that on my hotel bed when I went in to sleep that night. Yeah, I mean, the community sounds like it really just came together to try to resolve this as best as possible. Absolutely. We're on day five now of this siege, which seems never ending. And the pressure right only increases each day. The good news is there is some rapport developing, as I mentioned, between Dykes and law enforcement at the bunker, as well as on the phone. But really, the bunker is more that close and intimate interaction because we really hear each other's voices, not through a phone. Dykes on a call mentions to Bill, 
hey, uh, I know the garage hatch lid is heavy for you guys to open. And one of those two garage door springs that he installed to help lift the hatch come off in a storm, which I don't realize he must have known that from lifting it from underneath and it was heavier. Nonetheless, he says, hey, I'll offer to help. I'll come up from below and lift up that hatch so you guys can reattach the second garage door spring. So just pause for one moment. Think about this. The subject who's surrounded by hundreds of law enforcement, we don't need an ounce of help from the subject. We could have a crane. We could have 10 guys there lift that hatch up. No problem. But because of our negotiation efforts, again, developing a positive relationship and forging rapport with the subject, he is offering to help law enforcement. Truly remarkable, I think. It just shows that value of negotiation. So I hear this on the call. I run to the HRT senior team leader. I say, here's maybe a tactical opportunity because if Dykes is lifting up on that hatch lid from below, his hands won't have a weapon, right? Because he's pushing up on the hatch lid or most likely it won't have a weapon. And if we can see that Ethan is not right in front of him, then maybe law enforcement can neutralize Dykes safely. We have a noon medicine delivery coming up. And as you know, the deadly force policy doesn't change in crises. And the risks are increasing to Ethan, you know, each and every day. So we go up to that hatch lid and the operator is lying down there with his rifle just three or four feet from me. We deliver the medication as per routine. No, no problem. He lowers or releases the winch cables a couple inches. We lift up the hatch, drop down the medication. Then he says, I'm coming up. I help you guys with the hatch lid. Great. I'm right there. Dykes pushes up the hatch lid. I can see the white on his hair. I see the operator looking. And this is a no fail shot for the operator. The operator has to see Dykes' hands, has to confirm his shot. He can't miss by even a quarter inch because Ethan could be there. Or if he doesn't take Dykes out on the first shot, Dykes could initiate the ID or shoot Ethan or shoot us. A myriad of all negative problems if that operator misses the shot. The operator has to wait for 100% confidence. Dykes, as he's lifting up, it's now maybe two inches open. His eyes are just being visible to me and the other guy there at the hole. And the sunlight, like one in a million, glints off the edge of that operator's barrel. And Dykes sees the gun barrel before he can squeeze off the shot. So Dykes drops. Yeah, just like the worst possible thing, right? Negotiators had helped create tactical opportunity. And again, it's not tactical's fault. I'm not saying it's their fault at all because they have to confirm that shot. And the inability due to the circumstances to confirm Ethan's location, they couldn't take the shot. And now Dykes sees that and he's enraged. You mother effers. I was just trying to help you and you just tried to kill me. Tony starts to talk to him. I'm trying to whisper to Tony, we got to de-escalate. Things are not going well. And Dyke says, you know, you goddamn bastards. I can't believe this. He's not believing what Tony's saying. I should have pulled off Tony within seconds, removed Tony because we were part of the problem there, right? Our immediate presence. And I let it go on for 30 seconds, probably 20 seconds too long. I finally just physically pulled Tony back, pulled the rest of the team back and get out of there because Dykes was just ramping up inside the bunker, kind of spiraling more and more to a higher emotional state, which is exactly what we don't want. And then Vince and the team back in the rear with Rafferty did a good job. They called Dykes immediately, came up with a great excuse. Hey, that was a new guy at the hole. He just got too close. Of course, we weren't trying to do anything to you, Dykes. That guy will never come back. He's been fired. It's just a too close of positioning. But Dykes doesn't really believe it. You can see him lay down on his bed. He's like twiddling his thumbs, looking at the ceiling. You can see he's just processing it. He's fidgety, pensive, doesn't sleep all at night. And he says, I won't put myself in that position again. I won't go up the ladder. I'm not going to help you all. And that's kind of the beginning of the end. We actually see him grab the long gun and place it towards the IED inside the bunker. And as you know, many suicided people practice and rehearse their suicides. So we view this as rehearsal behavior, not a good sign at all. Additionally, we have other increasing risk factors. He tells us he showed Ethan how to initiate the IED. We actually never see that or hear that, but we have to take Dykes at his word. Maybe we missed it. And now more concerning is the behavior towards Ethan has drastically changed. Now he is ignoring Ethan's needs, whereas before he would actually hang up on the phone with the negotiator if he needed something and tend to his needs. Now he does the opposite. He turns his back on Ethan. 
and lets Ethan cry and wail away. And he tells us, deadline tomorrow at 5.30, and if my demands aren't met, they will force the action and the survivors will be held accountable. If survivors are held accountable, that implies that there will be casualties. Right. This is the fifth day now? Yeah, into the sixth. Yeah. This happens that afternoon of the fifth is him seeing the glint barrel, and the sixth is when it really spirals out of control. So now there's a big dilemma, right? This is a tactical nightmare for leadership, for HRT, for negotiators, for everyone on site, because we have a you know, victim located near the subject in a confined space, the ground and structure unstable. We actually even had ground penetrating radar provided by the military to look to see if there's a way we could tunnel in from the side. We had structural analysis from engineers who said if we try to tunnel in from the side, the dirt could collapse and it could collapse the whole structure. If the structure collapsed with all the dirt on top of it, it would likely suffocate Dykes and Ethan. So that option is off the table. We tried a silent drill, try to take out those eye bolts with a drill to take out that winch system, which holds down the hatch. The silent drill still made noise. We talked with doctors about sleeping gas, but actually any sleeping gas in a concentration to put Dykes out could be lethal to Ethan. So like literally every option is on the table. I asked if we could make an exploding cell phone. I was told, no, uh, we don't have that, you know, off the shelf capability of exploding cell phone. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. Well, they actually, the Israelis have done that before, taking out a terrorist subject. Seriously, it's crushing pressure on day six to save Ethan. As you know, right, what do FBI agents do? We solve complex problems with limited information in these evolving crisis situations. I came up with the uh, parallel approach plan. What it involved was his daughter, right? We had spoken with both daughters and asked if they'd be willing to help law enforcement resolve this. And the one daughter declined, but one daughter said, okay, I'll help. And we sent a car and had her brought to the scene. We asked her if she would talk to her father and she said, yes. This is back in 2013, right? This is before Zoom and other video Skype sessions, right? Before Skype was popular in 2013, it was being used a little bit, but I suggested, hey, let's put the daughter on a Skype session. We'll use her as kind of like a carrot. I'll hold one laptop. The other one will be connected, hardwired to the other laptop with the daughter. And then I'll lower that down the hatch just a little bit. So Dykes has to come up the hatch. And then Dykes can talk to his daughter. And maybe she can help us lower his emotions, find a possible way out of this. Or the other option is it maybe might open a possibility for tactical to resolve this. And that's why you wanted to do it with the laptop visually, as opposed to her just getting on a phone call. Exactly. We always strive for maximum distance between a victim and a subject. I had noticed Ethan, we'd given Ethan toys twice during that week. And each time we'd given Ethan toys, he would take them to the far corner of the bed. So I had noticed that and just putting this plan together in my head, I said, hey, if we deliver toys to Ethan first, and if he takes those toys to the corner of the bed, then that'd be phase one. Then phase two, if we could lure up Dykes to come up that ladder, then we have created the most distance between Ethan possible. And how do we get him up the ladder? Well, that's the daughter via the Skype session using her as bait. And it's a trap, kind of, but the trap that doesn't have to be sprung, right? Because if Dykes doesn't climb up the ladder, we've lost nothing. We've just delivered toys to Ethan, and Dykes will be none the wiser. You know, like the first incident, he saw the gun barrel. This way, he'd never see the trap. It was only if those conditions were set. So it this is like the, again, that the, what Gary Nesson and other negotiators wanted back in Waco, the true synchronization of tactical negotiation efforts. And again, due to you know, my experience in that unit, I knew, knew how tactical think, and I thought this was a great way to provide them an opportunity, but also sell management on it. I was on that call with the FBI director. Actually, there's maybe seven of us, Steve Richardson, the SAC, the HRT commander, the Alabama Bureau Investigation Colonel, of course, the Sheriff Wally Olson, myself, and BAU rep was there. And this is day six, even at day six, and right there were no other good plans. It's kind of like Argo, right? There's no, there's no good plan, but this is the best that we can come up with. And everybody liked my plan. We rehearsed it with HRT. It worked in rehearsal several times. So we decided to brief it to the director. So we brief it to the director. And then that's when he said, 
all right, I want every basically lead representative at the table down in Dothan, go around and tell me what you think of the plan. And thankfully, everyone said, yes, think we should do it. Yes, think we should do it around the table. The director said, okay, generally my... So Director Bowler is the director at, at this time. Correct. So he, the director Mueller controls, right? All FBI assets and resources. We are there working collaboratively with the sheriff. So he wanted the sheriff's input and buy-in, of course, which the sheriff provided as well as everyone on scene. And the director said something interesting. He said, well, in my opinion, the longer these crises go on, the more likely they are to end in a peaceful resolution. And oh, really? all of us kind of raised our eyebrows because again, this is what the challenge is, right? Trying to truly understand a crisis from afar is that I went through all those risk factors and it's tough to translate that over a brief to a person who's not there. And actually the BAU rep was the first to stand up to speak on the conference call. And she said, sir, we see this ending in a murder suicide. We don't see any other viable outcomes. We, we recommend proceeding with this plan. And the director said, I'll never forget it. Okay, do what you need to do. But before you do it, call me. So the director literally gave us all approval, then kind of took it all back and wanted one last final green light to be given. Which is difficult to do in this moving scenario. Exactly. And I'm not trying to badmouth the director, right? He has a lot of pressure and a million other decisions and information pieces going on. And maybe there was something else that I'm not aware of, but it did kind of at least hinder us from executing the plan, right? Till it got his final approval. So I remember me and my partner, we went to the SAC and we said, hey, sir, we kind of need a clearer answer from the boss to perform this. Even though there's a parallel approach plan, it may result in a tactical resolution, right? It may not, right? The trap may not be sprung. We just do need an answer. So they went back just one-on-one SAC to the boss. And I think Sean Joyce is on the call too. And he, he did a real good job too as the deputy director. He was former HRT, so he obviously knew how tactical thought. So we did get the green light, which is nice, just better clarity. The two conditions, which I outlined, the two triggers had to be met before tactical could initiate the assault. The first trigger is Ethan had the toys, was playing in the corner corner by the bed. And the second trigger condition needed to be met was that Dykes was up the ladder tube speaking to his daughter. So the boss said, hey, if those two are met, you guys have the green light to initiate. Great. Good. So we get that approval. And now, just to give your listeners kind of a flavor of the change of Dykes' status, as you've heard him before, you've heard his cadence, his pace, kind of his somewhat controlled conversations with us. And now listen to him on, on day seven as he talks to Bill Rafferty. This next clip contains explicit language. Please skip ahead 60 seconds to avoid playing and hearing profanity in this short section of audio. And there's going to be a determination as to whether or not just exactly what the hell is going to take place. Somebody above that sorry son of a bitch out there, just like I said yesterday, that sorry son of a bitch in the authority above you people, if that sorry son of a bitch doesn't have the man enough to talk to me and treat me and, and and respond to me and ask some goddamn questions for me and give me some fucking information, then by God, it's his fucking responsibility, the outcome, and you just go ahead and send some motherfuckers down that goddamn uh, funnel up there to their death. And you're fucking goddamn chicken. You're scared. You know goddamn well I'm smarter than most of you fucking people. You know goddamn well I have the knowledge, I have the experience, I have the ability, and I have the balls to show just how fucking corrupt this goddamn system is, just how corrupt you people are, just how fucking hypocritical you people are, just how stupid you people are. Big right. difference. Right, you just hear the, the vitriol, almost the hatred and anger. Dykes calling us stupid, and you know, you go ahead and send the mother effers down there here to their grave threatening us and saying my favorite line is he says he's smarter than us oh well, i don't think so jim i may not be the smartest guy but i'm smarter than you <laughs> yeah i'm not the one down in the hole 
Right. <laughs> He's definitely not smarter than the collective FBI, you know, at our finest. And that's what this was, right? That I think the FBI, when, as you know, when the FBI is laser focused on solving a problem such as this, getting Ethan out of there safely, it's such an incredible organization. And the remarkable things that we can do just really humbles me. We get that approval from the director. We brief the daughter. All we really tell her is that we have some talking points. Hey, well, you talk to your dad and maybe talk to her in five minutes and we're going to close the laptop if conversation is not going the way we like it. If you can't do what you want to do, do you want her to actually speak with him? Because you really don't know what their relationship is or how that's going to set him off either. So you have decided the only purpose of her doing this is for you to be in a position to take him out. Well, that's a great question from a true law enforcement professional who understands the dynamics of these, Jerry. So really insightful. Normally, we are very reluctant to put a third person on an active live conversation with the subject for exactly the reasons you mentioned. We can't control the conversation. We can't control the reactions. And we're not sure what's going to happen. We're a big fan of using recorded messages. We script out exactly what they'll say. They say it in a recording, then we'll play that for them. But in this case, we wanted a live conversation. It definitely was kind of a... I don't want to say leap of faith, but because the goal was to support, basically, I viewed it as how can negotiations set up a tactical for success? How can I, as a negotiator, maximize the advantage for tactical and maximize the disadvantage for dykes? And using her as kind of a lure, knowing we can't control a conversation, but she'd be good kind of bait. We talked through talking points with her, but we were giving up an element of control, but it's worth the risk because also if things started going off course. I think I mentioned we would just shut down the computer and then end the conversation with her. So it wasn't just solely to tackle it. I mean, that was the main objective, right? The set tackle. But that was the part of the parallel approach plan is if the triggers weren't met, like let's say Dyke stayed downstairs, but he was talking to his daughter, maybe she could bomb his emotions. Maybe she could buy us some more time. So it was that parallel aspect to it. It wasn't a negotiation track we could continue down with if he successfully and she successfully talked and it lowered his emotions. Does that make sense? Ideally, like from Waco, like negotiators and tactical, they're on different trains, but they should be mutually supportive trains. And sometimes the negotiation train goes faster. Sometimes the tactical train goes faster, but they always should be mutually supportive. This allowed both tracks to be moving forward at the same time. Makes Makes sense. sense. Absolutely makes sense. We have the daughter in the van uh, with the negotiator that's attached via hardwire cable to one I'm carrying. We walk up. Well, actually, it it was two crews. Is right during a shift change, the two different HRT teams. And Matt was on one team and then their guy, I'll call him Brian, was the number one guy on the other team. And that's not his real name. I'm just using it to protect him. And I'm holding the laptop and we walk up there and the HRT breachers, we knew exactly where those eye bolts were. So they placed the small shape charges on top of those three eye bolts. They actually use magnets, rare earth magnets to determine where those eye bolts were. Again, just some creative and genius work from the HRT breachers. So they'd circle that with a black Sharpie where the magnet hit, right? And that's where they put that shape charge. And these shape charges had to be designed perfectly, right? They had to be large enough to take out the eyeball, not so large as to cause significant shrapnel or to collapse the structure. So they place those on there. Tony knocks. He says, hey, we got the meds for Ethan, right? We do everything according to routine. He lowers the winch cables a couple inches. He drops in the medicine. Okay, got it. All right, we got the toys for Ethan. Dykes releases the winch a little more. We drop in the bag of toys. Okay, got it. We said, hey, we've got the computer now. I take the computer, I lower it down, and I had marked on the cable about 18 inches with green tape, because I didn't want to lower it any more than 18 inches, because we wanted Dykes to go up that ladder as far as possible. So I tied off, and then that was our last communication with Dykes, saying the laptop is there with your daughter on it. 
So we all then walk back from the bunker hatch, and now it's kind of all in three people's hands. It's in Ethan's hands, you know, where does he play the toys, and Dyke's hands, and his daughter's hands a little bit. Let me ask a little bit about the daughter. How old is she? And I think you said that it may have been years since they've spoken. Yes, they had, I think it had been over 20 years, which they'd spoken, so he'd been estranged from his daughters. She was a middle-aged woman. She's over 30, and she was thankfully willing to help us because she was willing to help Ethan. That was her kind of motivation. So if that, okay. we're very thankful and appreciative for that. Absolutely. So everything is going according to plan so far. Although, again, I talked about the transition between the two teams. So Brian's team was now number one. And Matt's team, right? Remember that short guy who was going to be the female dressed up reporter? <laughs> Matt's how, team is, how can we forget Matt? Yeah. <laughs> and now Matt is, well, all HRT personnel are kind of wired like this. They, they want to get into the fight. And that's what HRT selection picks the people that are willing to risk their life for others and, and who want to get in there, right? Matt wanted to be, and he was trained and rehearsed to be number one in his five-person team. So when Matt knew, though, that Brian was the number one man going in, they're all staged there. And this is very tense, right? The final five minutes before the operations go. And Matt wanted to try to lighten the mood a little bit. So he walks over to Brian's position, and he looks Brian in the face and gives him the double bird flipping off Brian because Brian gets to go number one in the hole. So, Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Envy of being able to risk your life. Exactly. But but also, I, I truly believe there was a intentional reason to do it, to try to break the tension and lower Brian's emotions, to get him to laugh and smile, because it was so tense. I firmly believe it. It was twofold. Yeah, he's kind of envious and jealous. But second, he wanted to see a smile on Brian's face, because if you're too agitated, if you're too amped up, even though HRT trains every day for stuff like this, this is a big deal, jumping into a hole, risking your life. It definitely brought a smile to Brian's face and broke the ice. And he said later, it truly was beneficial to him. So we have the daughter is on the laptop. She says, Dad, it's me. We have another third laptop, right? Kind of connected to it for the ground force commander to see. And then he, once those two triggers are met, then he would initiate command to assault. The one element we don't control, Ethan, he, thank God, follows the behavior which I'd seen before. He takes the toys to that spot in the bed. So he's far away. So condition one is met. Then the ground force commander said he sees Dykes' hand in front of that monitor. So he thinks Dykes is right in front of that monitor. He orders the breachers to initiate the charges, which initiates the assault. So the three charges go off. The breachers and Brian, the number one man, run up. They open the hatch lid, and they'd practice this right dozens of times. We'd rehearse this on that mock-up the night before, and I was helping orchestrate the rehearsal with a laptop and everything. But now these are the heroes. These are the ones that really deserve all the credit, those men who willingly risk everything and jump in that hole. So the first man, Brian, jumps in the hole, and he's a former Marine with combat experience. You expect every shaft to kind of drop straight down that 11 feet, and he doesn't. He drops down, and he's like almost hanging there in midair. doesn't make sense. doesn't compute, because I can see his chest and his head. He's bewildered. We are all bewildered. Why is he not dropped down? And we're all hoping that Dice would have been maybe temporarily neutralized from the explosive charges and disoriented at least, but that does not happen. He's hanging there just for a few seconds, trying to figure out what's going on. He gets receiving fire. Dykes is shooting at the number one man who's hanging in that funnel of death, that 11-foot drop, that steep ladder. So the guys pull him out, and again, he was shot at six, seven times. He goes over the medic. Medic asks him, are you okay? Are you shot? And he's so high on adrenaline, right? He says, I don't know, Doc. You tell me. The team leader, Witt, says, let's try the canine. We have some of the best canines in the world. Drops the canine in. The canine also cannot drop and descend down the bunker hatch. The canine is like hanging there as well. It doesn't make any sense. We had dozens of times looked down that hatch with a camera and with our own eyes during those medicine deliveries, right? And we saw no other obstructions. But now there must be some new obstruction, which previously had not been there. 
So after the canine comes back out, just some fantastic leadership. This is by that gentleman, Wit, who I think so highly of, and the team does as well. He sensed this almost cloud of doubt hanging over the team. And I'd kind of been operating for eight years. I've been in many crises with the team, and I'd never seen this before. The team had multiple failures. The primary breach had failed, right? The operator couldn't get in the door. Dykes was not put at a disadvantage. Now he had the advantage, right? He's actively shooting at us. And the team needed like a little jolt of electricity, a little inspiration. And he felt that. Wits said, guys, this is what we do. Get in the hole. So to the breachers, with a total disregard for their own life, reach into that hole where Dykes is still firing out of. They reach in the hole to figure out what the obstruction is, and they feel a secondary set of cables. Dykes, about five feet down or six feet down, had put up another set of crisscross bicycle lock cables to prevent entry. They feel that. One guy has a shotgun. He shoots away the eyeball. The other one has bolt cutters. He cuts it away. Then they come back out. They signal that it's clear. They throw a flashbang, you know, those non-lethal concussion devices into the hole. And then the same number one operator, Brian, who had been shot at and who could have easily stepped out of line and let someone else take his spot. And we're all trained to do that, right? To occupy the next position if someone's taken out. He bravely doesn't hesitate. And when I was in HRT, I was attached to U.S. Army and Navy special mission units. Been on dozens of high-risk missions and shootings here in the States. Been on over 100 combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've seen incredibly brave things from men and women in the Bureau and in the Army and in the Navy. And I've never seen anything as brave as what that number one man did. He jumps back into that hole to save Ethan, knowing that there's an armed adversary who's prepared, willing, and actively fighting. And he does not hesitate, jumps back down 11 feet into that hole. And in rehearsals, practices, he knows he's going to encounter one of two things. Either Mr. Dykes, and it's a fight to the death with his pistol or hand-to-hand or whatever means necessary, or he's going to encounter a five-year-old innocent child who's scared to death. That's what all law enforcement officers have to do in an instant, in a flick of a light switch, make a determination to protect and save a life or to take a life in order to save a life. We never want to take a life unless it's absolutely necessary to save another's life. So he lunges forward, not knowing whether it's going to be a fight to the death or innocent, and he encounters Ethan. And he wraps his arms around Ethan, and he turns towards the wall, and he protects Ethan with his own body. He shields Ethan and tells him, you're going to be okay, Ethan. You're going to be okay. Sorry, I get emotional. My palms are sweating because I'm thinking, okay, he encountered Ethan. Where is Dykes? Well, he knows. So the number two and three man are right behind him, right? I'm telling you slower than it obviously actually happened. And he knows that number two and three man are literally microseconds behind him. So as he jumps down, the number two guy is right behind him. The number two guy happens to be an army ranger. And the number three guy is a Navy SEAL. I love it because I'm a former army guy, but it's a perfect example of a joint mission, a Marine, then a ranger, and then a SEAL all going, working together in a joint fashion to neutralize the threat. So the number two man, he can smell Dyke's rancid breath. He senses the Brian, number one man, is down to his right. So he engages and he shoots Dykes with his pistol in the chest a couple of times with the Glock. Dykes, though, is a fighter and is fighting till the end. Dykes advances towards him and he hits that pistol. And as you know, with the Glock, when you pull the trigger and the front of that muzzle is depressed, the gun will go out of battery. The slide will go off to the rear. The gun is no longer functioning. So now, even though Dykes has been shot twice in the chest, he, probably unintentionally, has now taken that operator's weapon out of commission. So now they're tussling, they're fighting hand to hand. The operator takes him to the ground. Meanwhile, a number three guy comes in. He has a flashlight on his rifle and he sees a pair of blue jeans. And he knows the other operators are wearing their camouflage fatigues. So he knows that the blue jeans has to be the bad guy. He follows the blue jeans up. He sees the other operator on top of him. Meanwhile, the other operator is transitioning from his pistol, which is no longer functional, to his rifle. And then the number two and three man almost simultaneously neutralize Mr. Dykes. 
four and five man enter. They grab Ethan from number one man. They hand Ethan up. And one of the biggest kind of reliefs of pressure in my life was seeing Ethan come out of that hole, being raised up, and he looked okay. The medic looked him over quickly, the paramedic should say, and the ambulance is right there to take him to the hospital. He was unscathed. And at the hospital, though, he did say, man, those guys shoot a lot. <laughs> he, he confused all the flashbangs of non-lethal concussion devices that we threw in there, which emit smoke and the noises. He confused those with bullets. You know, we were not shooting at Ethan, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, almost a miraculous fact that none of the operators were injured, even though Dykes fired dozens of rounds at them and that he was taken out and all operators were okay and Ethan was okay is just incredible. I do always like to finish this off with talking about another true hero and besides those five guys that went in the hole who were the again most heroic thing i've ever seen also charles poland right he gave his life to try to protect those children he should remember it as well for his efforts yes great bus driver i think we think of them as just transporting the kids back and forth from school but they're there also for their safety and protection too and he definitely did that job yeah, he took his role as guardian and protector very seriously, and he gave his life to fulfill that that mission, that responsibility. He felt, they're my responsibility. You're going to have to shoot me at the face of a gun. So yeah, you, you talk about true heroism. As I mentioned before, this story is just filled with examples of heroism from ordinary people like him to the HFT operators, to all the law enforcement, you know, everyone who went up to the bunker lid, any one of us could have been shot at or could have detonated multiple IEDs, but none of us focus on that. You focus on getting Ethan out safely. One of the questions I have is the daughter. Was she still connected? Was she able to hear or understand what was happening? No, we, we never briefed the daughter on the plan. I didn't think it would be wise to let her know that she was the carrot. Although afterwards, well, so what happened during the sequence of events is as soon as the explosive charges went off, we'd instructed that negotiator close that computer so that she couldn't see what transpired. So she didn't see any of that sequence of events. The negotiators did, you know, inform her that her father had perished. And I think it dawned on her at that point that she was the carrot. So she was, I guess, rightfully so frustrated with me and, and felt used. Although I would do it again in a, in a heartbeat. Because in my mind, it was worth it, right, to, to save Ethan. And I'm, I'm sorry to have placed her in that position. I think it was the right thing to do. So what happens after an event like this? How immediately do you sit down and kind of do that hot wash of, you know, what happened and how things occurred? Because for people who don't understand that, in, you know, in, in every action or everything that occurs, at least with the FBI and with most law enforcement agencies, that they want to learn from each event about what went right and what they could have done better. Yeah, terrific question, Jerry. On a training evolution, we have a after action review, right? An AAR, usually immediately after the event, when the events are most fresh. And what I really liked about HRT and other high performing units I worked with, that AAR is there's no rank. The newest junior guy can even ask the commander a question like, I don't think we should have done this way, or why did you do it that way? You're exploring it not to point fingers, but you are there to have accountability, right? If you made a mistake, you should be the first one to speak and say, hey, I, I should have covered that door and I didn't. And that way, if you own it, you cover it, then it's usually, and you don't repeat the mistake, obviously, in the future. So it's a learning environment to make the team better. After Dothan, it's different, right, when it's an actual operation, and especially if there's been a shooting and there's been a death, because now the Bureau has to conduct a internal investigation about the shooting. And I don't know a good way around this, so I shouldn't complain about it unless I have a solution. I'll tell you, after Ethan was safe and at the hospital, I kind of wandered off on my own, went to a little rise, and I started bawling, crying. 
And I'm not trying to be manly here. I, I rarely cry, though. But I was so emotional that this pressure built up over the seven days and, and knowing that I helped orchestrate this resolution to this super complicated thing. I felt incredible pride, but also, you know, sorrow that Dykes chose that course of action and gratitude that now the operator's been killed. So it's just these different emotions flooding through me. And I was bawling my head out. And then my partner, Vince, came out and said, are you okay? And there was a feeling of happiness, you know, as well. I said, yeah, it's just processing this all. And then we did, to answer your question, we did then have a real quick HRT, not official AAR, but we talked amongst ourselves on the outcome. And that was really great because there, you know, a couple of people said, hey, this would not have happened were it not for Kyle and the negotiators. So that meant a lot to me, you know, hear that from my colleagues. Most importantly, it just cemented that whole tactical value of employing negotiators, right? And including them. And when you work in hand in hand, like I said, when you synchronize efforts, it's like an exponential increase in the outcome. The two are mutually supportive avenues, which negotiations can make tactical better and tactical can make negotiations better. So that was the main lesson learned to help cement that. And it was just a, an incredible event that I was proud to have played a small part in. And did you get a chance to meet Ethan? I did not. I, I chose not to. Interesting because he met several people afterwards, a commander and the SAC, and I didn't want to overwhelm and very interesting. Like I truly felt connected and bonded to him, but the emotional kind of state that five-year-old, I've kind of stayed loosely in contact with some around him to kind of keep updates on him. But no, I have not personally talked to Ethan. Well, this certainly was one of the biggest operations when it comes to crisis events that the Bureau has had. How were members of the teams recognized for the success of this operation? Well, the five gentlemen the operators that went in the hole, they received the Presidential Medal of Valor from the President of the United States himself at the White House. So just incredible recognition, which they deserved. The other 12 or so of us who were at the bunker lid repeatedly, we received the Department of Justice's highest award for valor, which is the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Heroism. So the AG himself presented that to us all. That's something that I feel fortunate to be included in that select group. Well-deserved honors. Definitely well-deserved. It's just a privilege to, to share this story. Like I said, it represented so many law enforcement efforts and heroics. I truly feel privileged to be able to share that story to others. You've said this many times during the case review, but this truly is a case that shows how you can bridge the efforts of the tactical agents of an HRT and the negotiators to come to a really satisfying conclusion. All I can say is, wow, what a case. Thanks, Jerry. It's definitely one for the uh, highlight of my career. Thank you for saying it. It's a privilege to share the story with, with you and others on your podcast. Talking about your career, that's a great segue for me to ask you my standard question, which is when and why you joined the FBI. In high school, right, I was kind of interested in the Bureau, but not too serious. I went to West Point. I was wanted to be an Army officer. But at West Point, one of my friend's dads was an FBI agent. And my second or third year, he took us to an FBI shooting range. He took us to TVOC, the Tactical Emergency Vehicle Operations Course. If you remember, it used to be in Wallkill, New York, prior to Quantico. We went there driving the one Saturday, and I started up and at West Point. I decided the Bureau just really appeals to me more. I, I enjoyed the Army, enjoyed serving my country. But the Army is very regimented, very strict lifestyle. There's, there's a manual for how to go to the bathroom in the field. And I relished hearing the story of the autonomy of an FBI agent and the kind of variety of jobs. As you know, you could working, you know, undercover in New York, targeting the Gambino mafia crime boss family, or you could be working healthcare fraud in Miami, or you could be going after Colombian gangs in LA. 
the diversity of jobs in the Bureau is unmatched in really any other job. And you could go in one field in the Bureau for five or six years and really almost be an expert and then start a whole new kind of field. I did counterintelligence for 10 years and loved that and then went to the counterterrorism tactical route for 11 years. So I almost had kind of two careers in the Bureau, but within the same organization. How long did you spend in the Army before you applied for the FBI? So actually, I applied as soon as I could. After West Point, you incur a five-year active duty commitment. At the three-year mark, the Army had a reduction in force, a downsizing of 10% of the officer corps. So actually, I applied to get out of the Army then to try to go in the Bureau because I already had started my Bureau application process. The Army wouldn't let me out, though. Even though the FBI was interested and I'd passed phase one and phase two, the Army said, nope, you owe us five years. And I said, hey, I'm going to another government agency, right? I, I really didn't see it. And even the Army time and the West Point time would count towards Bureau retirement. But the Army said, nope, you signed up for five. And I said, okay, I'll do my five. But I thought you said that they were downsizing. Yeah, I'm sorry. So I applied during the downsizing, but they had allocated 10% slots, but they were all filled by the time my application got there. So I was not selected. I didn't make the cut initially. I think it was late. So I did my four years and nine months in the Army. And then February 28th, 98, left the Army. On March 1st, 98, the next day, started new agent training. I did six years in LA working counterintelligence. I was on the SWAT team there, though. So I did have tactical experience and tactical exposure there in Los Angeles. So six years in LA, then I made HRT, did eight years on the team, three and a half years negotiator. Then I went back to the counterintelligence to CI work. I was unit chief at headquarters, two and a half years. Then I went, had a squad at WFO doing counterintelligence. And I just retired my last couple of years here in Miami as the assistant special agent in charge of CI and cyber. Well, that's really interesting. I was thinking that somebody with this interest in tactical operations would lean more towards terrorism than intelligence. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I started out in intelligence, CI and LA, and I really enjoyed it. Really enjoy it because it's like a mental chess game, as you know, that long term planning and kind of the really cool stuff that you could do in counterintelligence. Guy was able to do covert entries, you know, breaking into houses, buildings, cars, you know, doing the cool, sensitive things that we get to do in the CI world. I love that. So, yeah, I was able to do both those in my bureau career. And I really enjoyed both fields. Your body and family can only take so much of being in the tactical section of HRT. It's a lot of demands on you, obviously, professionally, personally, and on the family. So, you know, after 11 years, and the CI has more of a regular kind of schedule, you can count your weekends off, et cetera, and have more of a routine than you're on constant, you know, potential deployment in the tactical section. Well, now that you've retired, what are you doing now? How do you transition those skills that you picked up in the FBI in the real world? <laughs> I'm still figuring it out, Jerry. Now, I, my first thing is I, I do enjoy telling this story and some others. So I'm starting some public speaking, being an inspirational speaker. One thing I have is like the videos that accompany the story. And as impactful, hopefully, as it is hearing it on the podcast, I would say it's even more impactful seeing the videos, seeing the negotiations, seeing the bus video, and then especially the operators going in the hole. So I've given that presentation when I was in the Bureau all over the law enforcement community from the Baltimore Hostage Negotiation Conference, that's the biggest annual one, to the California Association of Tactical Officers, to really all over the world, to Nepal, it's FBI, National Academy events. Post-Bureau, I've given this inspirational speech and others at West Point to their leadership development program. I'm going to Cornell in two months as part of their executive leadership development program to talk about the kind of the leadership aspects of Dothan and, and my other Bureau experience. My goal post-Bureau is similar to you, really promote the Bureau and our successes. And really, I want to inspire, hopefully, and encourage others to be the bridge, right? My whole career, I've really yearned to be kind of that bridge between two elements, a bridge between others, to be a unifier and not a divider of people, especially now our country. 
my hope is that in some small way, we can all be unifiers and be bridges to others. Well, definitely, that is my mission, too. If somebody wants to have you come out and provide a presentation to their organization, how do they get in touch with you? Right now, LinkedIn is the best spot. You can message me there and, and connect up there. I'd love to come out again. I enjoy giving this presentation and all law enforcement should feel immense pride from operations like this because, you know, it's such a noble profession. It's really deserving of the public's respect and support. And the last thing, too, I'll tell you is I'm working on a book to share this story and some others and hopefully to inspire others in the next generation to serve as you and I did. Let us know when that book is ready to be launched and I'll definitely have you back on so you can share some more case reviews and people can learn more about the publication. Thank you, Jerry. That'd be great. I like to give my guest the last word. So what would you like to say? I retired after 24 years in the FBI and I had a great ceremony surrounded by friends, families, and colleagues. But I had five FBI agents who didn't get to have a retirement ceremony. Five that had funerals because they were lost. They were killed. I'd like to mention them, Greg Rahoy, Chris Lorick, Steve Shaw, Dan Offman, and Laura Schwarzenberger didn't get to have retirement ceremonies. And them and others in law enforcement have given their lives to sacrifice for your and my freedom. So I'd ask that others remember and respect our fallen law enforcement heroes. And that's the end of the interview. In your podcast app's description of this episode, there's a direct link to the show notes where you'll find a photo of Kyle Vowinkle, photos and links to articles about this Alabama bunker rescue, and a link to episode 188, the other FBI retired case file review show I recorded about this case. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. You can show me just how much you liked it by buying me a coffee. There's a link in your podcast app's description of this episode, or you can visit jerrywilliams.com and tap on the little coffee cup icon in the bottom right-hand corner of my website. Don't forget to follow FBI Retired Case File Review on your favorite podcast app. Now, this podcast is all about true crime, but if you're also interested in crime fiction, Once a month, via my reader team email, I keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. When you join my reader team, you get access to my FBI reading resource, a colorful list of more than 70 books about the FBI written by FBI agents who have been guests on this podcast. There's nonfiction, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. You'll also get my FBI reality checklist, where I debunk 20 cliches about the FBI and receive news about what I'm up to and about my FBI nonfiction and crime fiction books. I want to thank you for listening to the very end. I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.